We're in part four. This is part three. I got it right up there, but it's not up there right now. But we're on part four of His Cross. I just forgot to update my title slide there. And then I fix it on the, the big screen and still forgot to do it here. But we're looking at, been looking at the cross of Jesus. And I just want to real quickly recap where we've been in the first three weeks. In the first couple of weeks, we looked at the idea of shortcuts. We looked how the devil kept offering to Jesus something that, that was a good thing, something that he wanted, something that he needed, and even in cases, stuff that God wanted him to be able to have, but offered it to him through a shortcut so that he could avoid the hard thing. He could avoid the cross. He could avoid suffering. And that the temptation wasn't, hey, I'm going to give you something you shouldn't have. It was, I'm going to give you something that you should have, but I'm going to have you do it in the easy way. I'm going to have you do it without having to have any pain, without having to have any suffering. And that Jesus knew that was not the right way. That was not the way God had called him. Uh, we used to use the cliche, the ends don't justify the means. And a lot of times, sometimes we think, hey, I want a good thing, so whatever I have to do to get it should be okay. And that is not the case. And in this case, it was to avoid the cross. And that Jesus couldn't avoid the cross. Suffering was important. Suffering was part of the deal. And then last week, we saw Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, and we saw him struggling. And that it's normal to struggle to obey. He wasn't struggling with disobeying. It wasn't that, I don't want to do what God wants me to do. Ha, 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 ha. It was, no, I do want to honor God, but I don't want to do the hard thing. And so obeying is hard, and it's okay for obeying to be hard. And here's Jesus staying up all night just trying to get himself where he needs to go because it's hard to obey, because our physical situation is, is different than what the spiritual is. And so our physical situation resists hard things. It resists uh, saying no to ourselves. And so it's, it's normal to struggle to obey. And a lot of times, if we're struggling, we feel we're doing it wrong. We feel that if it's hard or if we're struggling, that obviously there must be something deficient in our spiritual walk. But you can't accuse Jesus of being spiritually deficient. And yet he was struggling. And we saw him stay up all night praying, fighting through his need to obey and his desire. He wanted to obey. The spirit was willing, but the flesh was weak. So now this week we're at the cross. We're at He's actually on the cross, and we're going to look at, well, what does now, now he's at the point of suffering. Up until now, it's just been coming. He's been preparing for suffering, but now he's in it, and we're going to look at what that looks like. So turn with me to uh, Matthew chapter 27, Matthew chapter 27, And we find him hanging on the cross. Now, as we get into Matthew 27, we need just a little bit of background of crucifixion because maybe you are familiar or maybe you are not familiar with where Jesus is at. So they arrested him, and they did two big things beyond, obviously, they put him on trial. But physically, they did two things to him. They scourged him, and they struck him. So the scourge part, they have like a cat of nine tails, you know, a whip with a bunch of different, a bunch of different whips on it, one handle, but a bunch of different strings on it. And on these, these strips of probably leather or whatever, they had glued broken pottery. 
And so then this guy would, you know, the, the scourger, he would, you know, whip this out. And of course, all these tendrils of the whip would then hit the person and kind of wrap around them. And they've all got this jagged stuff on it. And then he'd pull. And of course, that just shreds the human body, just ripping chunks of flesh off. And so they did this. And they did both sides. And so by the time you're done, Jesus' body has been basically almost reduced to like raw hamburger, all right? And then the other thing they did is they struck him. And so what they did, they stand him up here. And then all these Roman soldiers, and of course, these are Roman soldiers, so they've probably got some, some physical might to them. And they basically lined up and they took turns just punching him out. They beat him up. So he's been beaten. He's been scourged. So he's been reduced physically, just, he's just been destroyed physically. And we know that he's, Jesus was a pretty rugged guy. I mean, he had walked all over for three years. He's been hiking all over, and he's been going up to Jerusalem, which is quite the mountain hike. And he's so weak now that when they, they he's supposed to carry his cross out to the outskirts of the city, and he can't even do that. He collapses, and they have to get someone else to carry his cross because he's physically already so destroyed because they've already put so much on him. And now, they crucify him. And we're familiar with the basic idea of crucifixion. I mean, we've seen it. We've seen the, the, the little statues or whatever, or seen the movies. But what we might not understand is what made crucifixion so, so a, such a terrible way to die is that the way you died from crucifixion was actually suffocation. Because you're, you're, you're hanging there, and so you're hanging on the nails in your, in your hands, and then you've got your feet nailed together, and so your weight is hanging on your arms. Now, if you just try to stand like this for a while, you couldn't do it for very long. Like after a couple minutes, you'd be like, and the longer you tried to stand like that, it would start to hurt. And that's just you holding up your arms. But imagine if your arms are holding you up this way. Pretty soon, all these muscles will begin to seize begin to cramp. And if you've ever had a cramp in the, your chest muscles, those are not fun. I've, I have one now and then right here, and oh my goodness, bad, bad moment. So here, everything is spasming until you're just in one big spasm here. And so what it does is it means you can't breathe. It becomes very, almost impossible to breathe, and of course, you're already physically in trouble, so now your lungs begin to fill with liquid. So you can't breathe. So what you do now and then to try to get a better breath is you stand up on the nail in your foot and your feet. And you push the weight up. Of course, that's agonizing because now you're putting all your weight on a nail that's driven through your feet. And so you stand up. You just take the weight off your arms enough so that you can relax these muscles to get a breath. And so... In the accounts in the Bible, while Jesus is hanging there, when he speaks, he speaks in very short sentences, oftentimes even, especially later on, one word. Why? Because these are the moments when he pushed up on his feet, got a breath, could say one quick thing before he sunk back down. That's why at the end of the story, as it was coming close to sunset, and at sunset marked the beginning of Sabbath, they wanted the bodies off the crosses before Sabbath started, so they needed them off before sunset, which means they needed them to die before sunset. So what they would normally do is they, they had the, like a splitting mall or whatever, and they'd go up and they'd just smash the legs and break the leg bones 
because then they couldn't push themselves up and they die faster because now they can't get a breath. And so they went up and just began bashing their legs, but they got to Jesus. He already was dead, so they didn't, they didn't have to break his legs because he'd already died because he was in the worst shape. So he died before the other two, so they don't have to break his legs. And of course, the Old Testament had predicted that his bones would not be broken. So that's what's happening. So as we study these words today, you are studying these moments when this man who can't breathe pushes himself up to get a breath and speak. And we want to know what he says. What's going on in his head? What are his priorities? So the first one is in Matthew 27, 46. I'm going to actually start in 45 just because we need a little context here. Now, from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon all the land until the ninth hour. This is about noon to three. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's been dark from 12 to 3. He yells this out about 3. Well, this period of darkness is generally understood that this is when God began to pour out his wrath upon Jesus. Jesus has been suffering for a while because he started suffering before he ever got to the cross itself. But now here's the time where God begins to resolve the spiritual issue by pouring out his wrath. And this moment of tremendous wrath, three hours worth, is pictured by even nature reflects it. It gets dark. And after three hours of spiritual suffering, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's quoting Psalm 22. If you want to just go take a quick look at that. Now, Psalm 22, it was written by David. So hundreds and hundreds, five, six hundred years earlier, five to six hundred years before Jesus was even born, the psalmist, David, wrote a psalm describing the crucifixion. And that's Psalm 22. And Psalm 22, 1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. If you look ahead, if you just want a little more taste of this being the crucifixion of Psalm, verse 16 of Psalm 22, for dogs have surrounded me, a band of evildoers has encompassed me, they pierced my hands and my feet, I can count all my bones, they look, they stare at me, they divide my garments among them, and my clothing they cast, and for my clothing, they cast lots. So Jesus isn't just yelling out, he's yelling out scripture. Probably memorized this as a kid, especially because at some point he would have known that this was his psalm, that this was describing what he was going to experience. And so he quotes it. A funny little note, verse 47, and some of those who were standing there when they heard it began saying, this man is calling for Elijah. And sometimes people try to like spiritualize that. Well, why do they think Elijah? Well, because they misheard him. He's probably not speaking real, real clear at this point. I mean, he's physically in bad shape. 
So when he cries out, Eli, Eli, they heard, Eli, Eli. And I was, oh, I think he wants Elijah. Like, no, no, wrong word. <laughs> it's Eloi, it's, it's Lord. My God, my God. They just misheard him. That's why they thought it was Elijah. They didn't understand. They didn't realize the reference. But darkness from 12 to 3, this was at 3. And so what we're seeing is an intense spiritual element to his physical suffering. So he's not just suffering physically. He's suffering spiritually because he feels forsaken. He feels forsaken. So that's our first thing. I, I have to be Baptist someday, so today I alliterated. I don't alliterate much, but I alliterated today. So our first one was forsaken. Our second one is forgiving. So that was turned to Luke 23. And we're going to look at two verses in Luke 23, verses 34 and then 43. So Luke 23, 34, this is right when they hung him up. So his early words are a little longer because he's not as in bad shape yet. So 34 of Luke 23, but Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they cast lots, dividing up his garments among themselves. And of course, we just read that in Psalms. Now he's got two thieves on either side who are guilty. And one thief starts yelling insults at Jesus and saying, well, if you think you're so hot, if you think you're God, why don't you get us and you out of this? But the other thief says, dude, have some respect. We at least deserve this. He doesn't deserve this. And he turns to Jesus because he's up, figured out who Jesus is. And he says, will you remember me today when you come into your kingdom? And verse 43, and Jesus said to him, truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. And by now it's the sixth hour. The ninth hour. You say, I thought it was those on the different hours. Luke uses a different, one uses Roman time, one uses Hebrew time. But this is before the three hours of suffering. So we have forgiving here. He's forgiving the crowd and individual. Now notice, in both cases, he's reacting to the guilty with forgiveness. The group is guilty. What? They're they are doing an unjust, illegal murder and calling it a legal execution. But this has been, this is not just that we look back and say, well, they shouldn't have done that. They were breaking their own rules. That's why Pilate, a Roman official, what does he do? He says, well, I'm not going to stop this because there's too much political will here. But he washes his hands of it and says, but just so you know, this is wrong. And I'm, I'm out. And that's why he washes his hands. He's admitting that this is a travesty of justice. That this should not be happening. That Jesus is not guilty of what he's being tried for. And Jesus deals with this tremendous unfairness, injustice, and looks at the people who are perpetrating that and killing him unjustly and unfairly and denying him 
his rights, even just as a member of Israel, a member of his society, and his response is not, well, you wait. Oh, boy, you wait, because I'm coming back, and when I come back, oh, you boys are going to pay. You wait till you see what happens next, gentlemen. You think you've got me today, but I'll be back. And you're going to pay for this. You'll learn. You'll learn your lesson. No. He says, Father, forgive them. They don't get it. Well, they're guilty, all right, but forgive them. He doesn't respond with vengeance or even retribution retributive justice and said he says no forgive them oh they're guilty oh boy are they guilty forgive them the crowd doesn't know but the thief does and the thief says oh we do deserve this but will you forgive me and he says yeah you'll be with me today And so this shows the practical result of a forgiveness accepted. Forgiveness is offered to the whole crowd. But then we see that the individual accepted it. And Jesus says, you'll be with me today. You are forgiven. You're guilty, but you're forgiven. And so the crowd is granted, is given, is offered forgiveness, and the thief accepts forgiveness. And so we see the practical result of a forgiveness accepted. And that brings us to our third F. Finished. Turn to John 19. Verse 30. We're skipping over two other words of Jesus on the cross, and both of them are here in John 19. In verse 26 and 27, he says to his mother, behold your son, and to one of the disciples, John, behold your mother, basically turns the care of his mother over to one of his disciples. And then he says, I'm thirsty. And they give him sour wine. It was kind of a narcotic Verse 30, therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. In English, it's three words, it is finished. But in the Aramaic that Jesus was speaking, Jesus spoke Aramaic. He could speak Hebrew, but the day-to-day language of the time wasn't Hebrew, it was Aramaic. And it's one word. I'm not going to try to say the word, it's like, Terastai or Telestai, something like that. I didn't write it down. But it's one word in the, his language. We translate is finished. They have dug up, because you know, we have a lot of archaeology from this time. So they've dug up. I, I actually, when I was in Israel, back when I was in college, we visited Israel, and, and I visited the city. The, the city of Jesus' time is underground. Parts of it are underground, under the current city, because it got destroyed and buried. And they've, they've, so if you want to walk along some of the streets Jesus walked along, you've got to go underground. But they've got them all dug out. Some places are still above ground, around the temple, where the temple was. But they've unearthed documents. You know, they've unearthed, because back then they didn't write them on paper so much as wrote them on more lasting media. And so they found tax records, you know, where you get your tax bill in the mail. 
and written on the tax bill was this word, finished. It meant you paid your taxes. It meant that you, your, your obligation was fulfilled. You'd, you'd paid off your taxes for the year. This is the word that Jesus says. Paid in full. Be a better translation. Paid in full. It is paid. It is finished. It is completed. All done. Luke 23, 46. We won't turn there. But it's his last words where he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. It says here he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. And even there when he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, he's again quoting the Psalms, Psalm 31.5, so you can look that up on your own. So his first words on the cross are quoting of the Psalms, and his last words on the cross are quoting of the Psalms. He knows his Bible. It's a good thing. But the point here is even when it comes time to die, it doesn't, isn't something that happens to him. It's something that he has control over. He chooses to die. He gives up his spirit. He had said, nobody takes my life. I, I give it. I lay it down. And then I say that if I lay it down, I'll pick it back up again. And we know that's where he goes next. Three days, he will rise again. But he even releases his life on his own terms. He's not robbed. He's giving. But he's finished. So that's nice. All right, so we've... Forgive, forsaken, forgiving, finished. What does it mean for us? Other than, oh, well, that's good to know. Well, let's apply these three, okay? Let's start with forsaken. Forsaken is where we all start without Jesus. That's where we all start. Whether we're aware of it or not, we all start forsaken. And this is important to understand of why are we forsaken? We're not forsaken because God forsook us, which is an important thing to understand. Because so often we feel like, well, we're in trouble because God got upset with us and left. And so often it's portrayed as God's mad because you messed up, so he left, and so now we have to try to invite him back. And there's even worship songs, and, and I might even enjoy the song overall, but it's a little, sometimes it bugs me a little, because we have a lot of worship songs that are built on God, will you, God, will you, God, please come, God, please, God, please, God, please. But read the Bible, and what you'll see is the problem isn't trying to get God to come to us. The problem is God's been trying to get us to come to him the whole time. And who's, who forsook who? I mean, read Genesis 3 in the Garden of Eden. Who hid? You don't have Adam running around trying to track down God. You have God going, Adam, where'd you go? Adam's like, hiding. And the history, all the way through the Bible, you see God saying, please, please come back. Because the, forsook, the forsaking wasn't done by God. But what is the human response to that aloneness? Blame him. Because all you know is you feel alone. And you feel abandoned. You're like, God, what'd you do? When, when my kids were little, little, they don't do this anymore. Well, maybe they do. <laughs> they did it more explicitly when they were little. You discipline them. And say, okay, well, you, you can't have the dessert or you have to sit in time out or whatever. 
And they'd say to their mom or dad, mom or me, you're hurting my feelings. Be like, now hang on. <laughs> hey, hey, you're the one who's wrong in this situation. <laughs> I may be making you unhappy, but no, I, this is not, no. <laughs> but isn't that our human thing to push it off? And here Jesus feels forsaken because he's under the wrath of God, which we are. Now, Jesus is under the wrath unjustly, but we're born in this because we are under it justly. And so the beauty of his forsakenness is that he enters this state with us and for us. Jesus has lived for over 30 years. The one thing he hadn't experienced yet is that sense of forsakenness. Because although he was born as a human, he wasn't born with sin. And so even though he's had the flesh and he's had to fight against it, he's never sinned. So he's never had that sense of what it means to be separated from God because of your actions. And yet in this moment, the Bible says that he became sin for us. And so in that moment, he finally understands, he finally experiences, what does it mean to be separated from God because of what you've done? And so now he completes the human experience by experiencing being God forsaken, but not forsaken because something God did, but because of what we did. We all start here. And that leads us to our second word, forgiving. Because this is our escape. <coughs> Excuse me. This is our escape from forsakenness, is forgiveness. And this is central to God's work. This is central to God's work. And I want to focus on that because a lot of times we tend to think of God's work in regards to mankind. The picture that we tend to have about what is God's main thing is judgment. Because when Jesus comes back now, because we've already experienced his first coming, that's what we're focusing on this morning. So that's kind of something that happened for us 2,000 years ago. So when we think about him coming, we think about him coming and he's the righteous judge and he's going to come judge. And we think about God's going to come judge, the final judgment, the big judgment, God's going to judge, God's going to judge. And so we focus on God the judge. And we think about God being the judge and that that's the big thing is he's a judge. And so then you start going, I hope I... And so even if you're, if you're interested in God, if you have a heart for God, and so you wander into a church or a religion because you're like, I have this awareness of God, I have this hunger for God, I have this desire to move towards God, and so you walk into a church and what do you hear? Here's what you need to do because he's ticked. And he's going to judge you unless you right? Because he's a judge. And so we may know he loves us, but our picture of him is first and foremost that the center of the, the center of what he's doing with mankind is judging. Righteously, of course, but judging. And so you walk into religion, and religion says, well, you know, God's a judge, but here's how you can get out of it. And maybe it's what you have to do. But that's not right. Because 
Judgment is not central. Forgiveness is. Because this is the culmination of God's whole plan. This is the moment the plan is fulfilled. And the purpose of this plan isn't judgment, it's redemption. The plan is redemption. God's goal for mankind isn't to judge mankind, but to redeem them. And Jesus said that. He goes, I didn't come to judge the world, but to save the world. That's the plan. This is the center of all God wants for humankind, is to save them. That's who he is. And that's how he wants to react to you. Through redemption, not through judgment. And that's why this moment is central. Because this, a lot of times, you know, when you plot a story in a movie or a book, you have the, the story starts and you have the conflict. And you have what they call the rising action. And then you have the climax of the story where the central conflict is resolved. And then you have the falling action where the resolution plays out. And then the story ends. And most of us think about human history and we think that the culmination is the second coming. The judgment seat. That all of human history is moving up to the judgment seat. And that's not right. This is the climax of the story right here. The central conflict was the conflict between God and man and at this moment it's resolved. And everything else after that is just the resolution of that moment. We're in falling action. The final judgment is not the pinnacle. This is. The final judgment is just where everyone's choice is finalized. It's just where the story ends. And all those who have accepted forgiveness are recognized. And all those who have rejected forgiveness are recognized. But the climax of the story is right here at the cross. It's the center of God's work. And that brings us to our last word. Finished. Jesus tells us the stories at its climax. Because as he wraps up, he goes, we're done! It is finished! Completed. The work is over. The debt is literally paid. And that's why he utters really what is a word of commerce. Paid in full! We're done. His cross and his death is about finishing or satisfying. In fact, if you've ever studied theology and studied the theology of salvation, we have a bunch of different words, propitiation, sanctification, justification, all these different vacation words. But all of them refer back to what God has done because salvation is always about what God has done. And he's done doing it. He's satisfied. What do you satisfy? Well, he satisfied our debt. We broke, we broke the law. What was the law? Love God and love others. And we didn't do either.
We've been hurt because other people didn't follow the law and they hurt us. They caused us damage. I mean, what is our whole law? Our whole law is about what? Restoring hurt in people. If someone steals from you, they take away from your life. If they break into your house and steal something of yours, you've lost something. You've experienced loss. So then what are they supposed to do if they get caught? They're supposed to repay, restore the value lost. Well, what if they take something non-tangible by hurting your feelings, hurting your emotions, hurting your soul through assault, through abuse? Well, then aren't they supposed to pay something still? Yes. And if they take a life, well, then their life is forfeit either through death or through imprisonment, right? Because the value must be paid back because otherwise what was lost is meaningless unless it is repaid. And that's God. God says you are valuable and so when you are hurt, that matters. And since we hurt people, we have a debt and since we've been hurt, we need restoration from those who have hurt us. And God's mad about the whole thing because God loves you, so when you get hurt, it makes him mad. And when you hurt people, it makes him mad. When you betray him, it makes him mad. Why? Because he's, he's got emotions. Because he loves us. And he loves one another. And we have vengeance to us. And in all this, the cross deals with it. It takes care of it. All of it. And that's why after three hours or four hours after he's hung there and he's endured physical suffering and he's endured the forsakenness of sin, he yells out, we're done! It's paid! It's finished. In the temple, there were no chairs for the priests. The priests were not allowed to sit down. Why? Because a priest's job is never done. Because the work of the temple is to constantly be dealing with the people's sins before God. And therefore, that job was never finished. Why? Because the people were never done sinning. And so the priests, while they're on duty, were never to sit down. The Bible says that when Jesus died and returned to heaven, it said, and he has sat down at the right hand of the Father. Why? because we're done. I finished the work. We're all finished. The work is over. And Jesus sat down. It is finished. So three questions. First one. How have you been aware of your forsaken condition? Because we all have probably and should experience forsakenness because we were all born in it. We're all separated from God without Jesus. And you say, well, I got saved at a young age, so I've never experienced forsakenness. Well, notice that Jesus experienced forsakenness 30 years in. Why? doesn't mean you're not saved, but because... We're still in this flesh. The echo of our forsakenness sticks with us, you know? And there are days that I can taste it. 
I know I'm not forsaken now, but there are moments you feel it, right? When everything's hard and you go, God, where are you? How's that been for you? When, when are the moments that you felt so alone? Why? Because we still live in this messed up world that was created by our rebellion. And so forsakenness is all around us and it's still in us sometimes. How, has that, how have you fa- experienced the forsaken condition? And that leads to our second question. Have you accepted the forgiveness offered? Because that is the solution to being forsaken, is to be forgiven. So God says, I forgive you. Come home. Because it's not about God coming back to you. It's about God bringing you back to Him because you're the one who left. You feel forsaken, but you're the one who actually forsook Him. And He says, I forgive you. Come back. I forgive you, be with me. Have you accepted that? Because see, a lot of times we don't. Because we still want to do something. We want to take care of it. So God, I know you love me, and let me just show you. But the minute you say, well, I just want to, I just need to clean myself up. I just need to make things better. I just need to, then you are rejecting forgiveness because you are trying to do it yourself. And that is rejecting forgiveness. Your motives may be great, but you're rejecting forgiveness. And you can't reject forgiveness because if you reject forgiveness, you're rejecting the whole point of everything God is trying to do for you. And that's where it's going to determine how your story ends. Because the only thing that matters, the, the, the whole center of your whole story with God is His work for you. He forgave you if you'll just accept it. Have you? And a lot of times we even, we try to turn this into a work. Well, here's what you have to do. You have to say these words. You have to pray this prayer. You have to do these things to get it. No. It's called by faith, which means believe it. If you believe with your, if you believe with your heart, you'll confess it. Because you believe it, because what's in the heart comes out of the mouth. So if you confess with your mouth, Jesus, Lord, and believe in your heart. But it's the faith that saves you, not the words. The guy on the cross, he just said, Jesus, I know you're innocent. Will you forgive me? She said, yeah. Totally forgive you. Today you'll be with me. I'll see you in a little bit. I'll meet you in heaven. I'll meet you in paradise. Have you? Have you accepted his forgiveness? Now what happens for many of us is we tend to loop these first two words. Like we ask God to forgive us, but then we feel forsaken at some point. The old echoes. And you feel like, maybe I didn't, maybe I didn't mean it enough. Maybe I, maybe I didn't say it the right way. Maybe, maybe I wasn't totally committed. And so we feel forsaken. So we ask for forgiveness. And we feel forsaken. And we ask for forgiveness. Now, I don't think that that loop is sinful. But that's a nasty loop to be in. And that's why we need to get to our third question, our third word. Do you rest in the finished work of Jesus? Because really you need to move from forsaken to forgiven to finished. 
to rest in his finished work. To say, I don't have to keep asking for forgiveness because it's done. He did it. You're not resting in whether you prayed hard enough because it's not your work, it's his. And so your faith is not, did I pray? Your faith is, did he forgive? It is finished. Do I trust that? Yes, okay. Well, I still feel forsaken. Uh Uh-huh. But I've been forgiven and the work is finished. And then you allow that to frame your life. Because you understand. And Paul says this. Paul says, I am crucified with Christ, therefore I'm not alive anymore. Jesus now lives in me, and the life I now live, I live by faith, by trusting in the one who loved me and gave his life for me. He refers back to the cross. He goes, that's what my life's about now. The one who loved me and gave his life for me. I'm finished. I'm not even alive anymore. Now I have this life of God, and he lives in me. Now, you say, well, Paul wasn't done his work. He wasn't done his work, but he and God were done. We'll talk about how we live later, but he and God, the work's finished. And we need to rest in that to say, if you have been set free, you are free. The work is finished. And there's nothing more for you to do because Jesus did it and it's done. It is finished. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to celebrate this. And I meant to warn you on, if you didn't remember on the stream, that we're going to do communion here in a couple minutes. So if you've got to run and get something to drink and something to use for the bread, go grab it. So now this... Some churches turn this into an act that you need to do for you and God to be okay. And that is not true because the work is finished. And Jesus tells us, he says, as often as you do this, do this to remember me. It's a referral back to his work, his body and his blood. It's not something that's happening now. It's to remind you what happened that's finished. And this is an act of celebrating his finished work. So this isn't something we do to try to maintain his work. His work is done. This is to help you remember that you can rest secure in his work by remembering and celebrating his finished work. And he knows that we need reminders. So he said, do this to remember me. But oftentimes we've turned this into one of our works to make us a better person. But this is a reminder of God's work, not yours. This is not one of your works. This doesn't change where you're at spiritually. It doesn't grant you new powers. It is to embed you back. And I was forsaken by my sin. I was forgiven by God based on Jesus' death on the cross and that work is finished and I am His. And that's what we're going to celebrate. 
So have this ready. I'm going to play a song. It's called The Weight of the World by the group Rain for Roots. And it talks about, because right now, guys, don't we all feel the weight of the world? It's scary out there, right? And we have a lot of people, including Christians, who seem pretty mad right now. And there's all this, are you going to do something? Oh, my Savior has sat down. And the weight of the world, it oftentimes feels like i got to hold it right here. But I am no longer forsaken. I was forsaken. I have been forgiven. I have accepted that forgiveness. And the work is finished. Dwell on the words of the song. Next week we're going to look at the attitude that took Jesus to this. But right now, let's prepare for communion.